morning, friends. Welcome to The Wall. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're glad you're here. And if you'd like to let us know, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just tell us about yourself, and you'll get more information about The Well. We appreciate you being with us this morning. It's the second week of our new series, Not That kind of Christian. Now, we want to be known by what we're for. We want to take the positive approach. We don't want to be known by what we're against, but what we're for. And at the same time, when we say that kind of Christian, we all know who we're talking about, don't we? We think of people who are self-professing Christians who maybe see themselves as the moral police of society. They're judgmental. They look down on other people. Maybe they don't value diversity. Here we are on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, and we are seeing a renewed movement of racial animosity in this country from people who don't value diversity, and there is some overlap with people who call themselves Christians. Uh, Maybe they're anti-science during the time of the pandemic and climate change. Maybe they're anti-gay, anti-women, anti-intellectual. And you may be a person who is skeptical. You may be watching this service Uh, because you're interested in in the approach maybe, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, even people who are skeptics, who who are uh, agnostic or atheist realize that that there are people in America who profess to be Christians who really look nothing like Jesus or the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels. It's becoming clearer by the day, it seems. And so we know what that kind of Christian looks like. And at the same time, Here we are, uh, the day before we commemorate Martin Luther King Jr., and we realize he was motivated by his faith. He was a pastor, a Baptist pastor, who saw justice and righteousness in the Scriptures. There are over 2,000 verses in the Bible about addressing poverty and, and living justly and righteously, which means to do what is right by everybody. So there are different kinds of Christians, it seems, and in this series, we're proclaiming what we believe it means to follow Jesus Christ, and and we just think that means being a Christian. Christian means little Christ. So we know what that kind of Christian is, but we want to follow the Jesus we see in the Gospels. And here's where we're headed and where we've been in this series. So last week, we talked about freeing Christianity from political authoritarianism. Today, we're talking about understanding the Bible. On January 23rd, next week, we're talking about this uh, topic, did God kill Jesus? In other words, is God violent? We're seeing self-professing Christians posting pictures of themselves on social media with guns in front of Christmas trees. They seem to be radicalizing their followers in a violent direction here before the elections of 2022 and 2024. So is God violent? And then on January 30th, Christianity and other religions or no religion, how do we relate to people of no religion or other religions? Then on February 6th, faith and science, again, during a time of the pandemic and climate change. Then on February 13th, the history of American Christianity and race. We're seeing people show up to school boards and protest critical race theory, even if that school doesn't teach critical race theory. And again, as we think about the the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we're going to talk about race and Christianity in American history. And then on February 20th, Christianity and abortion. And February 27th, the Bible, and sexuality. We hope you'll come back and join us every week. And today we're talking about understanding the Bible because what people believe about the Bible influences your life every day, whether you want it to or not. So for example, there are people who believe the Bible is anti-science in a time of the pandemic. And their view of the Bible 
causes them to distrust science and, and keep spreading COVID-19 and the Omicron variant and however many more variants there are. Their view of the Bible affects your life. The same during climate change. There are people who believe the Bible condones violence against their enemies in contrast to what Jesus clearly said about loving your enemies and turning the other cheek and things that so many of us know. But they seem to be inciting their, their religious followers toward violence in the United States. There are people who have beliefs about the rights of women or the rights of people who are gay based on their interpretation of the Bible. So their view of the Bible affects your life every single day. Now we say here at The Well, thinking people can take the Bible seriously. If you're a skeptic, you're thinking, please, how could thinking people take the Bible seriously? But what we say here is thinking people can take the Bible seriously when we interpret it in the light of its historical context. When we understand what the Bible is and therefore how you interpret it, you may see something much different and much better in the Bible than so many folks are seeing right now. So that's where we're headed today, understanding the Bible. Three years ago, my wife and I were sitting on the couch one night and she said that that day she had found a lump on our son's leg. At that time, he was eight years old and she found a lump on his right leg just above his knee. Now, of course, as soon as, as she told me that, that was the first time we had a chance to talk that day, I, I, my anxiety level just went through the roof. And we called him in. I said, buddy, let me look at your leg. And, and sure enough, he, he had a clear lump on his leg. And so my, my wife made an appointment to take him to the pediatrician at 8 o'clock in the morning, the next morning. And we didn't say anything to him about what it could be. But sometimes we, we underestimate how smart these, these little kids are. And that next morning, after we just tried all night to, to just get some sleep and not panic, Right before she took him to the doctor, he, he asked me, Daddy, do I have cancer? And, you know, in that moment, the truth is we didn't know. And at the same time, you, you can't say that to a, a child. And, and so I said, well, buddy, I kind of st stammered like I am right now. And I said, buddy, probably not. I mean, it could be so many things, but that's why we're taking you to the doctor. And mommy and daddy are going to make sure that we take good care of you just broke my heart. So we went to the doctor and of course the doctor was concerned about it and referred him to a specialist. And we had to wait a week to see the specialist. And some of you may be in the situation right now where you're in that waiting game. You know what that's like, waiting to see the doctor, to see what, to see what uh, this could be and this time of uncertainty, you know, and, and, and they're in the waiting. Even thinking about this just bring, you know, brings it all back. And so about 10 days later, um, he went to the specialist and thankfully it was benign. And, and we were so, so thankful and realized you may have gotten a different diagnosis from the doctor. Maybe you've gotten a phone call recently or maybe the doctor has come back into the room and, and given you news you didn't want to hear recently. And so our, our story turned out well. It turned out it was a, it's a growth they can take off when he's a teenager and after his growth spurt and he'll be okay. No big deal compared to what it could have been. Now, as soon as my wife told me that she found that lump, I said I tried to get some sleep. Most of the night I was up Googling what this could be. And you know how that goes. 
when, when you have an ailment and you look on the internet, I mean, it could be one of 20 things and some of them are cancer. And, and, and we did our best not to panic in that time of uncertainty, waiting to see the specialist to determine, you know, what, what is this lump on our son's leg? Now, we all face in uncertainty and the anxiety that causes in life. We live in anxious times. Of course, as a country, we live in anxious times. But personally, we live in anxious times. You may feel financial stress or job stress or relationship stress. Maybe you have strained you know, relationships with people in your family about the things that are going on in society. And we always have these, these personal things that, that stress us in addition to, to the things that we're all facing right now. But that creates uncertainty. We don't, we don't know how everything's going to turn out and we feel anxiety because of that. Now, when we feel this anxiety, there, there are some of us who are tempted to reach for certainty, that we want to be certain about some things and just be able to hold on to that. And for some people, religion is one of those things. And more specifically for some people, the Bible is one of those things that they reach for and they want to feel certainty about the Bible. And that certainty, it's like a drug that reduces their anxiety. Now, the theologian James Dunn calls that impossible certainty. There are things in this life that we just don't have any way of being certain about. It's beyond the, the limit of human understanding to be certain about some things. But there are folks who will, who will hold on to a religious belief. This is also how conspiracy theories work. That, that feeling certainty that they understand the real story about what happened, that relieves anxiety. And so the Bible is one of those objects of certainty that some folks will grab onto. And maybe you were raised in the the kind of environment where that was taught as a good thing to you, that you're supposed to be certain about the Bible. And and maybe the Bible was the most important thing in, in the religion, if you think about it. Maybe the Bible was more important than God. If you look back on, on the way that some folks view the Bible, it was the very first thing in their statement of faith on the church website. And when they talked about the defining characteristics of your brand of Christianity that you were raised in, the Bible was the very first thing. Their view of the Bible maybe, maybe uh, positioned them against modern science, against the threat of Darwinism or evolution. Maybe that's how they saw it. And against certain um, lifestyles, they would put it. And they, maybe they watched televangelists that would tell them that you know, people who are gay are a threat to them and they would hold this view of the Bible that, and they were certain about it and it protected them against this perceived threat. And, and the Bible reduced their fear, their view of the Bible reduced their fear and, and reduced their anxiety because they were just certain about their interpretation of the Bible to the extent they wouldn't even call it their interpretation. They just assumed that they read the Bible and they, they know it and they believe it. We're a Bible believing church. And so as we talk about the Bible today, you, if, especially if you come from one of those environments, you may feel emotion at times. Rise up in, in your gut. I may say, say something and you think, <gasps> because that, that triggered some belief that you have been given about the Bible. And so I just want to acknowledge that. For some, it's an emotional topic because it is one of those objects of certainty that we grab onto. And I was raised this way too. I love the Bible. I, I preach sermons from the Bible. I read the Bible. I want the Bible to be a guide for my life. And at the same time, I was told some things about the Bible that turned out to be problematic for me later when I started to think about them. 
So uh, I went to a little Baptist youth group when I was a teenager in rural Ohio. And one of the things they told us was the Bible is like the owner's manual for life. Whenever you face something in life, you just, you just open the Bible and you can flip to a certain page and it's going to tell you what to do. Another thing they, they told us was the Bible, B-I-B-L-E, stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. So think about that. Faith is about some other place, some other time, going to heaven when you die. It's not so much about now. It's just instructions to get you there, like, like Google Maps to get to heaven. That was their view of the Bible. But then when you, when you open a, a paper Bible, if you remember what one of those looks like, we have apps and everything now, but a paper Bible, you would open the front cover and then there's a table of contents. And if you were to read that table of contents, you would just see a list of names, some of which sound foreign to us. Hezekiah, for example. And, and, and you would think, well, that, that's just, this isn't an owner's manual. Like an owner's manual would read like, um, how do I get my iPhone to turn back on? That's not in the Bible. How do I fix my car when I'm monster? That's not in the Bible. More seriously, what's the cure for cancer? That's not in the Bible. Um, how do I do this? How do I do that? And, and maybe in your tradition, you were told that, no you, can, no, you can find the answers to all these questions that we face in life in the Bible. But now that you're a little older, you realize, actually, there's a lot the Bible doesn't even address. The Bible doesn't say it. It doesn't read at all like an owner's manual. And then, of course, if you flip past the, the table of contents, you would see that the Bible is in story form. There are, are people, characters, and there's a setting where they lived, and then there's a plot, what happened to them. They did this, and then they did this, and, and then there are different kinds of literary forms in the Bible. There's poetry in the Bible, and genealogy lists. When people try to read the Bible in a year, they'll get to the genealogy list, and it's like literary quicksand. They'll just like sink as they try to read. And, and there are different kinds of literature in the Bible, and it just doesn't read anything like an owner's manual. And, and then you would find instructions that just don't seem to make sense, like don't trim the corners of your beard and don't eat shellfish. And slaves, obey your masters as though you're obeying the Lord. You think, wait a second, th this, this doesn't read like an owner's manual. How, how do I find guidance in the Bible? How can thinking people take the Bible seriously? How could the Bible be some kind of guide for my life if it's not at all like an owner's manual. Well, the place to start might be with the Bible itself. We assume that the Bible is one book because it's bound between two covers, again, if it's a paper Bible. But the Bible did not look like that in its original form. In fact, the Bible is not one book. It's a collection of many books written perhaps over 1,200 years by people who lived in various cultures in various places in the ancient Middle East and, and ancient Europe. And, and the original books of the Bible were written on animal skins called scrolls, and they were stored on shelves like this. And so you could have a situation where you might have a few scrolls that are now in the Bible in one location, and then a few hundred miles away, you had some other scrolls that are now in the Bible, but all of those scrolls were never together in one place for hundreds of years. And so we have this illusion that the Bible is one book that you would not have had 
had you seen the biblical books in their original forms in scrolls stored in various locations. So the Bible is not one book, it's a collection of books. And what would we call that? We would call that a library. So the Bible really is a library. It's a collection of books. And these original scrolls were not even stored in the same locations for a long time. But through a process, a long process, they became unified. And then there was a new technology called the Codex, which was cutting up animal skins into pages and then binding them together on one side. So you could flip them from page to page. And, and then, of course, that later developed in, into a book. And, and so the Bible is not a book. It's a collection of books, more like a library. Imagine if somebody went into a library and they read a book on this shelf over here and then they walked to the other side of the library to this shelf and they read a few pages of that book and then they read a book over here and then they went up to the librarian and they said, you know what, I've got something I need to tell you here. You have books in your library that contradict each other. And the librarian would probably reach for the panic button and, and think, you know, who am I talking to here? And then the librarian might say to you, well, we, we don't have books in a library because they all agree with each other. If that, were, if that were the case, we would just need one book. In fact, we have, we have all of these books in a library because they provide different perspectives on many different topics. And, and we can educate ourselves by considering those different perspectives. We can learn and grow and, and educate ourselves. And that's what a library is for. But of course, you know, in our culture, because of this illusion that the Bible is one book, there are people, and maybe you were raised in one of these traditions, that they believe everything within the Bible has to agree with everything else. And if it doesn't, it's a contradiction. And so they will, out of their desire for certainty, they will preach that the Bible has no contradictions, as though a disagreement would be bad, as though a different view would be bad within the pages of the biblical books. And, and then, of course, there are other folks who read the Bible and they say, well, there appear to be hundreds of contradictions. And so it gets framed in this, in this way of, of contradictions, whereas that you would never say that about a library. It doesn't make any sense. So the Bible is not one book. It's a collection of books. And then, of course, we want to interpret the Bible in its historical context, the books of the Bible, rather, in their historical context, in the context in which they were written, who wrote them, what language they were written. The Bible is written in three different languages, Hebrew uh, languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The book of Daniel starts in Hebrew, switches to Aramaic, and then switches back to Hebrew. And, and so what did the authors believe? What, what were the beliefs of the culture that these books were written in? That would be context. But then once again, you have the beliefs that some people are given about the Bible, one of those is that the Bible is inerrant. That, that everything that's written in, within the pages of the Bible will always agree with everything else. And inerrancy technically means that the Bible is accurate in all it affirms, including matters of history and science. And so inerrancy is actually a, a somewhat of a new belief and largely in reaction to Charles Darwin. And, and origin of species, the theory of evolution, and then the, the societal changes in America in, in the 60s and 70s. And there were groups of people who may have raised you 
who decided that they needed to define themselves over against people who believe in evolution. They needed to define themselves over against people who believe in women's liberation. And so they developed a view of the Bible that, no, the Bible says that God created the world in six literal days. And scientists don't say that, so I believe the Bible. And, and there are views of women that we find in some parts of the Bible that are troubling. Other places in the Bible, we find views of women that are, that are liberating and, and freeing and inspiring. Here's what the Bible actually says about the Bible. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed. There are other English translations that would translate that as inspired, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So in verse 16, you have that, that phrase there, God-breathed. And again, other translations have translated that as inspired. And so from that verse, you have this, this belief that the Bible has been inspired by God. Once again, Paul was writing about the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Bible. There was no New Testament because he was writing half of it during this time. And then the Gospels were written later. But Paul says it was God-breathed. And so there are some people who read God-breathed and they're like, oh, that means dictation. Like God dictated the, the, the books of the Bible to the authors. And now if that's the case, we have a lot of explaining to do. Because, again, the biblical books are written in three different languages. And there are authors who have various levels of vocabulary and, of course, different vocabularies. And so if God dictated to this one author in Hebrew with this level of, of uh, understanding of grammar, and God dictated to an, another author in Hebrew, and it's grammatically kind of a mess, and then God, again, in the book of Daniel, dictated to the author in Hebrew and then switched to Aramaic and back to Hebrew. And then in the New Testament, Mark seems like it was written by somebody who wasn't a native Greek speaker because the grammar is kind of, it's just simple, simply written. And then Matthew and Luke, Luke especially, is a highly skilled writer. And so if God is dictating to these authors, then God is dictating them in different ways and in different languages and in different vocabularies. And it just doesn't seem to, to hold water. But that's what some people believe inspiration means. Now, the only other times in Scripture that we have God breathing something is when God creates Adam in Genesis 1 and then breathes life into Adam. And then the Gospel of John, when God breathes the Holy Spirit onto, when Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit onto his disciples. There's nothing about dictation in those other two examples. It's, it's breathing life, breathing the Spirit into someone. And so that word inspiration is, is difficult, or God breathed is difficult to interpret. In fact, in, in, in 2 Timothy, Paul says that it's useful. The scriptures are useful. That just doesn't make a very powerful t-shirt, does it? Like, or, or a very you know, pithy tweet. The scriptures are useful. And they're, they're useful to make us wise for salvation through faith in, in Jesus Christ. So they're able to, to help us experience salvation in Jesus. And then correct us and, and train us so that we can be a good person. That we can be the kind of person that God wants us to be and has created us to be. And we can follow Jesus that's what Paul seems to say about the scriptures, that the scriptures are useful to be a, the authoritative guide 
for us to follow Jesus. And so if you hold to a view of inerrancy, you're welcome at the well. That's fine. It's just that there are so many things that need to be explained by somebody who holds that, that view. It doesn't seem to help thinking people to take the Bible seriously. So how can the Bible be a guide for my life if it's hard to interpret, if it's not inerrant, and if, if it requires interpretation to understand the, the culture of what it means? And, and, and so I've used this example before, and so I'll, I'll condense it. There are so many people who are well-meaning people who in their desire for certainty, they ignore context 
and they just read the text and they assume that they're reading the correct interpretation of that text, and then they end up making embarrassing mistakes in interpretation. Now, there is actually a science of interpretation. It's called a hermeneutics. It's how you interpret any message, whether it's the Bible or any other document or my iPhone text. And I went to seminary for four years to get a master's degree. And, and one of the most important things you do is you learn hermeneutics. You learn how to interpret the Bible, but you don't have to go to seminary to learn how to do that. There are resources available and in, on, on Amazon or in any, any bookstore that would help you to know the context of the biblical books. But there are so many folks, once again, out of their desire for certainty, they just want to read the text and assume they know what it means with 100% certainty. And that relieves anxiety and it reduces fear because anything else other than that means, well, that means there are different interpretations. That means that I can't just read that and automatically know exactly what it means, even if it was written 2,000 years ago on the other side of the planet by people who are very different from 21st century Americans. That, that, that's a buzzkill for that desire for certainty. So how can the Bible be a guide for our lives? If it's not inerrant, even in matters of faith and, and science, and every single word is not dictated by God, and that's not what it means that the Bible is inspired. How can it be a, a guide for us? Well, perhaps there's something more complex and mysterious and something more beautiful happening within the authorship of the Bible that means something for our lives as well. And actually, Christians throughout history have believed this. No Christian group throughout history has really believed that God dictated the Bible to the biblical authors. There's always been this belief that God somehow works with people, that God partners with people. So whatever it means that the, the biblical books were inspired by God, somehow God used human authors and their vocabularies and their languages and their, and their understanding and their culture their view of the world, and somehow God partnered with them and gave them the, the honor and the dignity of writing these biblical books. And so perhaps it's not a matter of 100% of certainty and dictation, and, and I just automatically have the correct interpretation because it's so easy to read the text. Perhaps God is the kind of God that partners with human beings, in times of uncertainty, to help us understand what's going on, to help us see just a little bit more step by step, to understand who God is, to understand who we are, to understand what it means to live righteously. As Paul says in, in 2 Timothy, we understand what it means to live well more and more in every generation. And, and God was helping the biblical authors to do that as they wrote perhaps over 1,200 years. And you can even see a, a progression within the Bible itself from views of God that are violent to views of God that are peacemaking. And you see views of women that, that make women second-class citizens. But then you see a progression even within the Bible, within the biblical books themselves, in which women are elevated and held as equals. You see easy explanations for things that happen in the world, like, well, God is the cause of everything. But then you see a progression within the biblical books so that by the time you get to Jesus, 
Jesus says some things just happen for, for unknown reasons or maybe for, for naturally explainable reasons. So there's even a progression within the Bible itself as maybe God partnered with human beings in our frailty, but also in our understandings, in our growing understandings. And that finds its way into the Bible. And you know, that's good news to me. Because if that's how God partnered with the biblical authors, then maybe that means that's how God works with me. And I'm not, I'm not such a hopeless case that God just has to open up my brain and just dictate words to me because I'm not capable of understanding anything from God. So, so I, I just have to be like a robot and God has to force me to write certain things. But maybe it means that, that you have lots of gifts and that you have insight and God can partner with you and God can use what you have and your understanding and then lead you forward to help you progress like the same kind of progression we see within the biblical books. And you're not a hopeless case. You're, you're, not, you're not trash. You're not worthless. No, God can dignify you and honor you and partner with you and work with you and lead you in life. And, and you can walk in partnership with God. If that's how God inspired the biblical authors, that's good news for somebody like me because it means that God can dignify and honor me and, and, and I can walk with God and I can progress. I can grow in my life, which seems to be the kind of thing Paul's talking about in 2 Timothy, that Scripture can correct us and teach us and train us, help us to grow, help us to mature and, and righteousness, become more like the people that were created to be. It's also good news for me because I don't have to check my brain when I read the Bible. I don't have to, to see how some people handle the Bible out of anxiety and this desire, desire for impossible certainty and say, well, I don't want to be like that. So I just have to chuck the Bible. I can't take the Bible seriously. Well, no, if, if the Bible is a record of, of God partnering with human beings to make progress, well, then all of a sudden... The biblical books are, are opened up to me as this repository of wisdom and the search for wisdom and, and the lives of my spiritual ancestors trying to make sense of life the same way that I am. And, and it's not an owner's manual. It's something way better than that. It's, it's inspirational. I find myself in the stories. I can learn about my own life and, and you can find yourself in the stories. And God can, can speak to you and partner with you now and help you to grow and progress just like they did. There's a poem by a German poet named uh, Rainer Maria Rilke. And it's based on the story of Jacob wrestling the angel in Genesis chapter 32 in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. And if you remember that story, God appear, uh, mysteriously appears to Jacob and they wrestle all night long, which is just a strange story. You, when you when you think of what it might be to might it be like to encounter God, like what would God say? What would God say to me if I met God? What would God say? You don't expect it to be, hey, you want to wrestle, but that's what happens to Jacob. God wrestles with Jacob all night, and God lets Jacob think he's winning the wrestling match for a while, and then before daybreak, this this God, mysterious figure. Some people say angel, but Somehow God wrestling with Jacob, this figure touches Jacob's hip. 
and his hip is wrenched out of socket and Jacob walks with a limp for the rest of his life. But then God also gave Jacob the blessing that he sought, that he was wrestling God for, was this blessing that Jacob wanted. And so Jacob learns, and of course this is, a, this is an illustration of maturity, a growth process in life, how we think we have all the answers and we've got it all figured out, but then there are things that happen to us in life that cause us to wrestle with those things, to question. And in that wrestling match, we're looking for blessing, of course. We want to know what it's like to live well, to, to live a good life. Blessing is rooted in that idea. And so we wrestle with these things. But then as we mature in life, we figure out that we're not God. We don't have it all figured out. We're not perfect. We have weaknesses. We have frailty. And we walk with a limp. We go through things in life that scar us. And, and, and we walk with a limp afterwards. But we're blessed in that process because we've grown, we've learned. Like the biblical authors, as, as, as revelation progresses throughout even the biblical books themselves, we realize through life we've grown and we've learned and we were blessed even in painful times. We were blessed as we wrestled with God and we wrestled with life and we're humbled by that and we become, we become more mature. We become better people. And there's this poem that is based on that story. It's called The Man Watching. I want to, to read that poem. Are you struggling with, some, with uncertainty? Do you feel like you're wrestling through life? Are you wrestling with God? Are you wrestling with your beliefs about the Bible? Are you wrestling with anxiety, with fear? Well, this is The Man Watching. I can tell by... Now, you may not be a poetry person, and at the same time, we can see in this poem one of the most difficult lessons of life. We all know this is true, and at the same time, it's hard to see it when we're facing uncertainty and pain and suffering and questions because, because we're so close to it and we're experiencing the pain of going through it. But one of the most difficult lessons of life 
is that people who have everything handed to them and their lives are easy and they live a silver spoon life and they don't really face that much adversity. There are exceptions, but those people are known often for not really being people of, of character, the kind of people you would admire. They may be self-absorbed. They, they may be narcissistic. They, they just haven't faced difficult times in life that have humbled them and helped them to be better people, more empathetic people. So one of the most difficult lessons of life that none of us wants to learn, including me, but it's still true, is that it is uncertainty and pain and difficulty that forces us to grow, to mature, to grow to be a person of righteousness like Paul talks about in 2 Timothy, which means, again, to do what is right by everybody, to be the kind of person who is concerned about other people and is bigger than myself and, and thinks beyond my own selfish, selfish interests. And it is the uncertainty of life and the pain of life, seeing a lump on, on your loved one, going through difficulty, facing grief, getting that diagnosis you didn't want, getting that layoff, that disappointment. It doesn't mean that God causes those things. We don't believe that God causes those things. We're not, we don't believe that God is sadistic or that God is the cause of everything. But in how we respond to life, one of the most difficult lessons, it is, it is those things that cause us to grow and mature and become more righteous people to look to the experiences of other people and, and feel empathy for them and to become better people. Friday, my, my youngest son, uh, who, who actually just turned six yesterday, he came home from school and, and he told me that he watched a video in his class, he's in kindergarten, about Martin Luther King Jr. and his assassination. And, and I don't know the video that, that the teacher showed him. And he started crying. And, and as he was crying, he said, they shot him. And I was, I was concerned for a moment. Did he see a graphic video? He, I think he's too young for that. But then I realized he is heartbroken over the loss of someone who did good things in this world. And, and so I picked him up and I said, let's go into your room. And, and walked in there and I held him and, and I said, what happened to... Martin Luther King Jr. was a tragedy and it was wrong and it was a crime and it's terrible. And, and it is good to cry when we face that kind of injustice in life. It's good to cry. And with his life and even in his death, Martin Luther King Jr. made life better for everybody everybody, and still does. I, I said, Bubby, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. lived the kind of a good life that, that we all can live. And he made a difference with his life. And even because of his suffering and even in his death, he made the world better. And so while it's, it's good to cry over the injustice of what happened, we also celebrate what he did with his life and also in his death, what he continues to accomplish today. And, and I mean, that's heavy for a, a six-year-old. 
And at the same time, that's true of life. It's one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult lesson we learn in times of uncertainty when we are tempted to grab for impossible certainty. And, and the Bible is one of the objects of that desire for certainty. And we grab onto things and pretend that we have it all figured out. It's a conspiracy theory or some ideology that we hold onto without question. And, and we just grab a hold of that thing and we want, we want 100% certainty out of that thing like it's a drug and that that certainty will lower our anxiety and reduce our fear well that kind of certainty is not possible for human beings and that's not even what the authors of the biblical books like like Paul were saying the bible is for Paul said the bible is useful for teaching and correction and and as a guide in our lives. It is authoritative for us when it's interpreted in the light of its historical context, which that creates uncertainty. If, if every single word of the Bible isn't dictated by God, then, then it must be interpreted. And the act of interpretation creates uncertainty for some folks that they're uncomfortable with, but that's real to life. Just like the people within the pages of the biblical books who dealt with real life and they wrestled with God as Jacob wrestled with, with God. Jacob wrestled with the angel and as this poem so beautifully expresses, it is that wrestling in times of uncertainty that brings blessings into our lives. God doesn't cause it. We don't think that God made that happen to make to make you grow, that is not what we are saying here at the well. But that these things happen in life. Uncertainty is a part of life. And we wrestle with life. We wrestle with God. We wrestle with our questions. And it, it, it is in that process of wrestling with life that we are somehow blessed. That we become better people, more empathetic people. We grow. We, we are trained in righteousness, as Paul says in 2 Timothy. Like Martin Luther King Jr., we are beaten. He was physically as well as emotionally for standing up for the right thing and then even killed for it. And yet his life became a bigger blessing. It is the uncertainty of life that causes us to grow. And even in that, we are blessed. Perhaps that's a view of the Bible that is healthier, and, and wiser, and a view of the Bible that actually helps us to grow as we study the biblical books. I invite you to pray with me. Oh God, thank you for this powerful scripture from Paul about what the, the Hebrew Bible meant to him, including the story of Jacob wrestling with you and, and wanting you to bless him but then his, his hip is wrenched out of socket and we go through life with, with pain being scarred by life and, and that is a part of our maturing process. We're humbled. We're, we're made more empathetic. We actually grow to become better people through adversity. And it is one of the most difficult lessons of life. It is in the uncertainty of life that we're forced to grow and we become more loving, more empathetic people who are more like you. God, especially on this weekend in which we commemorate uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
we see the perfect example uh, in, our, in modern times of somebody who followed the example of Jesus and, and stood for what he believed and he was killed for it. But by his life and even in his death, he is a blessing. Out of his suffering has come immeasurable goodness. And that is true for all of us. And so God, as we think about all of these difficult topics here in the remainder of the service or the series, and so many of them are rooted in our view of the Bible. God, may we not use the Bible to, like a drug to feel some sense of impossible certainty, but may we, like the people within the Bible, wrestle with you, wrestle with life, even in the uncertainty and the pain of life, and realize that you are calling us forward. You're calling us to grow, to mature, and you are helping us to be better people, more loving, more empathetic people like you, even in the uncertainty of life. We thank you for this hard truth, but this freeing truth, the one that actually does make our lives better. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,